morning. You're very welcome to this week's uh, Formula One trip down memory lane, and it's a, it's a show now between now and when the when the season starts, where we'll be looking back at a race from from years gone by. And to take us through it, we have um, as always Michael O'Grady. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. It's it's good these little trip downs. I hope I hope the listeners are enjoying them because if I'm you know, rather than commentating on a race and saying what happened, at least you're kind of looking back at a, a, a race and something that happened and you're able to talk about it in different ways rather than worry about who's fighting for third and who's fighting for fourth. You just get to the point. It's it's good, really, isn't it? That's it. And I, I think it is. It's nice for the, you know, fans that will be tuned into this uh, podcast, you know, that, that are into Formula One to to have a trip down memory lane and kind of reflect and I suppose get nostalgic uh, about about uh, races from years gone by. And uh, yeah, so the track, the, the track we're on about this week is Jerry's. Um, yes, indeed. So a track that has been used in quite some time, actually, really. Yeah. So you, you really are going back. And it was uh, 1997, uh, definitely a, a good good moment, a bad moment. Uh, it's a bit of a black spot, but it's an important event in Formula One. And I found out a little bit more information about it, too, which I'll come back to at the very end. Um because it's, it's, uh, I won't hit on it too much. It's mildly controversial, but I won't hit on it too much, as to say. But for the race itself, um, drama, controversy, and blonde wigs. Because, <laughs> yeah. of course, Jack Villeneuve is blonde, and a lot of people were wearing blonde wigs for Jack Villeneuve. I, I wonder, did they do that for GA as well? What do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I don't. <laughs> well, you, you were saying there that it, it was it was a it's a racetrack that hasn't been used in years. Is there a particular reason behind why it wasn't used for years, oh, or is well, it down is it down to that controversial point that you were saying that's and that, is that the reason why it hasn't been used for years or? No, thankfully not. Um, uh, putting on a Formula One race is not a cheap thing to do. It's serious amounts of money now. It's like everything. It's a serious amount of investment, but you do get a serious return on it when you think there could be some tracks that people are paying 400, 500 euros a ticket. Um, it's, it's serious amounts of money can be made there, you know, but it is a big investment. And sometimes like Brands Hatch used to be a Formula One track at one time, but it was just so expensive to repair it. It just fell by the wayside. And of course, it's also... It's like the situation of, uh, you know, a restaurant in, um, we say, a shopping centre or something. It's out for tender. Someone else comes up with a better tender. I'm afraid you've lost it, mate, you know. So it's a bit sad. It is a bit sad. Mm. But at least, you know yourself, at least we get to look back on it in this um, episode. Just even mention it. Keep it alive by mentioning it. Isn't that the way it is? That's it. And I suppose, um, suppose looking at it geographically, um, whereabouts is it like what country is it in and I suppose really the type of track that it is you know the way there are some tracks that are more windy and twisty and very tricky bends in some room more than others like what sort of first of all like I said where what country is it like where is it and what sort of a, a, a track was it well uh... Certico del Jerez, they call it these days. 
4428, uh, 4. sorry, I nearly fell over that, a kilometre racing circuit in the city of Jerez. It's about 90 kilometres roughly south of Seville. Um, I, I'm guessing at the 90 kilometre mark, I have to admit, I've got, right. a little, uh, I've got a little scale on the map here. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So if, it, if it's 80 or 100, you'll have to forgive me. But uh, anyhow, it, it, is, it is a beautiful track. track. It really is sort of in south of Spain. Um, I think it's in Sherry country, which is maybe something I shouldn't know, really. <laughs> you know yourself, maybe it is something I shouldn't know, but there you go. It's a, It was a great little track in its day. Um, I, I, I honestly think if you were looking at it these days, it might be a bit more challenging for the newer cars, but it was a beautiful little track with a couple of sweeping corners. Indeed, track one was a bit banked, um, very slightly, not too much, but um, it, it does allow the speeds to to go up a little bit more, as they say, you know. But it is a beautiful location, and I believe I have heard there is a beautiful museum there. Um, with several uh, superbikes, superbike champion bikes there, and a few of the old Formula One cars. I do believe, and I could be wrong, um, you can, someone can uh, uh, um, tell me if I am, but I do believe there could be a Jordan F1 car on display there recently, uh, which would be a great thing to see for, for any Irish person, as I say. You know yourself, it, uh, great little track, very impressed with it now, I have to admit. Fun. Fast, um, very popular with Red Bull, um, and some of the teams have used it as a test track. So that's always good to see. It's always good to see it's been used for something. You know, it's uh, uh, I don't know. It's like it's like you know the dead never die. I don't know. It's yeah. like it's still alive. It's still here. It's still you know in motor racing, which is a great thing. It's like um, I suppose it's it's like a park, you know, for a hurling pitch or whatever. It's nice to see it being used. You know, it's nice to think that that's what it was made for and it's still being used. Call me nostalgic and strange. I've been called worse. <laughs> oh, well, so this is it for sure. Like, how, how do you define normal in this day and age? But I suppose, you know, because we're on about cars and, and with the connection to Formula One, um, uh, you're probably familiar with... Um, with the program Wheeler Dealers, and obviously, you know, there's a there's a guy on now called Mark Elvis Priestley, and he was he was a Formula One a former Formula One mechanic. So that's an interesting. Uh, obviously, he's fixing normal cars now, but uh, I just thought that was an interesting kind of footnote to to say from the from the point of view of mechanics in in uh, Formula One. Uh, you know, that's because that that's a very good program, and some of the some so, some of the cars are very you know that 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 they fix on there are very good. I know it's got nothing to do with what we're saying now, but just just kind of that uh, Formula One connection. Yeah, I I I'm actually not allowed to watch those programs anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I keep getting ideas now. I, I love Wheeler Deaners and and Car SOS is another one I was watching for a while and all that. They're they're fabulous. What they can do with something that's just a total rust bucket. He's yeah, incredible. I, actually, I might just do a quick mention to a man called Martin Doyle in Waterford. He actually built our house, and um, when he was building the house, the guy restored a Mark II Jaguar, and you should have seen the state of it before he got his hands on it. And he's done a fantastic job. I love seeing things like that. I have to admit, I wish, wish I had the talent to be able to do something like that. That's to be honest. But I'm, I'm sure it's just hard work and years of being a mechanic. You know yourself. I'm not a mechanic. <laughs> Well, I'd say you'd love to have a look. You'd love to have a chat with Mark uh, 
Elvis Priestley, you know, with him being a former, a former Formula One um, mechanic. Uh, mechanic, you know, that that would I, I'd say that would spark anyone's interest that that's into cars, but more specifically Formula One because the the amount of things you could talk to him about with regards to both normal cars and Formula One cars, the things that he would have. You know, you know, knowledge of that that you could ask. Well, there'd be no end to it. <laughs> no, yes. Well, I mean, he's working on the best. You know, when he was when he was working there, he's working on the best engines. The uh, engines stretch to the limits as much as they possibly can. You know, yeah. it would have been incredible. I I think he was around the, the V six era and things like that. Seriously powerful engines. So yeah. it would be, yeah, it would be that guy had come up with things he wouldn't even think of. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But I suppose back to back to the track itself. Um, the track is it, it's absolutely marvelous, but unfortunately, it has it did become famous for that one incident. And I mean, it is I, I think it's the most controversial moment in Michael Schumacher's career, really. Um, because uh, cast your mind back, it was very intense. Um, it really was something else, I have to admit. Williams were. Their, their, their fortunes normally fluctuate but these guys were doing really well in 1997 I have to admit they were on average I remember actually on the top of my head in Melbourne at the start of the year there were something like two seconds faster than anybody else it was just unbelievable speed you know and Ferrari managed to catch up um, Eddie Jordan was actually Michael Schumacher's teammate at the time and Ferrari actually managed to catch up and got slightly ahead with an inferior car. Now, when I see an inferior car, the 1997 Ferrari, it was at the start of the, the Schumacher, Jean Tos, um sort of Ross Braun sort of era. It wasn't the fastest car on the grid. It wasn't even second fastest car on the grid. Yet Michael Schumacher arrived at the final race of the season leading the championship. It was only a point, but leading the championship was just Absolutely incredible. Finishing ahead of Jack Villeneuve would have made him world champion in his second year at Formula One, which or at Ferrari, I should say, which, which would have been amazing because it would have been the, it's the first title, obviously, since, as we spoke about him last week, Jody Schechter in 1979. Of course, it didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. And his, I suppose, his achievements for the entire season, which were spectacular, absolutely were overshadowed by it. It was it, it, it was just it was just a bad day, you know, it really was a bad day. There's a dark art to following and racing and chasing someone at this sort of level. You saw us with Hamilton and Max Verstappen this year. It is a dark art and you bury it away in your little toolbox and kind of reach for it when you need it as an all-lose or all-win sort of situation, you know, and yeah. And that's the way it was, you know. Uh, I mean, Schumacher would rise to greatness, you know, a couple of years later, as they say. Uh, I suppose his switch from Benetton to Ferrari was was very weird. But the race itself, um, five victories in 1997, I think, and a number of retirements for Jacques Villeneuve was, was his major problem. The Ferrari basically topped the champion by a single point, but on lap 48... Last uh, last race of the year, um, unfortunately, Villeneuve dived up the inside of Michael Schumacher, who was in the lead, and making that car very, very wide. Uh, it was a very, I have to admit, it was a very ambitious uh, late-breaking manoeuvre. I think everybody held their breath and expected 
a collision, to be honest with you. And it looked yeah. to be absolutely judged to perfection. But what he hadn't counted on is his, Michael Schumacher turning a little bit too hard and hitting him on the side. Uh, the subsequent damage to the side pod of, 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 of uh, Villeneuve's car wasn't enough to, to, to really have any damage. It was more of a cosmetic souvenir, will we put it that way, uh, really, of the incident. But not enough to take him out. But, uh, of course, Schumacher found himself stranded out on the stones, uh, getting nowhere, and um, just out of the race as everybody was judging replays and the judges were looking at us and, you know, trying to figure out what his intentions really and truly were. Um, Do you think, it, like, in your opinion... That that particular manoeuvre, I suppose, on behalf of, of um, Schumacher, is it something that maybe he could have got a penalty for? It is something he should have got a penalty for. Um, yeah, I agree with you on that. But there was, how should I put it? There was something with the FI races. There definitely was something going on. And I found something out about that. And I'll come back to that in a little while because you're going to like this one, Aidan. I think you are anyway. I know you're <laughs> up to date with these things. I really do. <laughs> well, of course, you have to be, you know. Yeah, I, I, I had to laugh when I was looking at it and looking through it. I, I found a, a quote from Martin Brundle, who was um, commentating on the race that day with Murray Walker. And, and the commentary went out, that didn't work, Michael. You hit the wrong part of the car, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there you are. But it was really, I mean, totally, totally off the off the off the Richter scale. Really, Michael Schumacher coming back was totally, utterly convinced that he had been wronged, and and it wasn't until he got back um, to the garage that, uh, of course, Ross Brown, who at the time was technical director, uh, you notice once the adrenaline wore off, and they came over and watched what happened and he saw what really had happened uh, and the move that had happened. Schumacher just realized, oh, did I really do that? Um, you yeah. know, it's, it's difficult. I mean, uh, you know, increasingly, I suppose, people come back to the pits and they have a completely different mental view of what happened after being in an accident or being in a race, you know? And it, it wasn't until he saw it, uh, did it really come to the fore with that one, you know, coming back to the bits. I mean, he, he was even saying, Venus should be disqualified for that. I can't believe, cannot believe that happened, you know? And it was just absolutely amazing. I think it's like everything. Uh, I suppose the incident earned Schumacher no sympathy at all. Uh, in the FIA, really. And I, I think when you're in the cockpit of a Formula One car and you've got that helmet on, things happen around you and you just act. You know, you just you just deflect, you turn, you do whatever. And uh, just, he was just caught. He thought he was doing the right thing and it was a bit too much. Um, you know, Ross Brown even said that he was acting instinctively to defend yeah. a position just as any other Formula One racing driver would do. Um, but I mean, I mean, the the end of an inch could be the difference between getting a penalty and not getting a penalty, or winning yeah, or losing, well, a, winning or losing a race. It's the fine margins in this game. Yeah, well, that's very true. And I mean, it 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 if it, it you know you're talking about fine margins, a foot and a half of Villeneuve wouldn't have been ahead, and it would have been Villeneuve's yeah. fault. So yeah. I mean, you know, who's to blame for that, really? Uh, but once Schumacher saw the screen, um, he did apologise, and he actually rang the. Williams team and said look 
I was wrong on that. Uh, I don't know how I did that. I, I didn't figure it out. Um, you know, but what happened after that was peculiar. Um, obviously, Jack Villeneuve became world champion. So that was that. Michael Schumacher was second. But shortly after that, there was a record fine in the region of 1.2 million from the Formula One's high court, which had to be paid. Now, now saying that, what Michael Schumacher was earning at the time was a drop in the ocean. And I suppose, you know, the Ferrari insurers wouldn't want to pay that because, of course, the team are, have their drivers insured against anything like that. And they were 100% even behind them then, which yeah. was a good thing to say, you know. But it's, it's easy to see, as we do, through replays in the eyes of the media, uh, what's going on. But even Ross Braun said, you know, stick on a Formula One helmet. Let's see what you can see. Um, yeah. That was one of his sort of giving out about it afterwards. In the film Schumacher, which I, I'm sure a lot of people have seen at this stage, it was very interesting, of course, because I think the fact that Michael Schumacher had no input into this at all, uh, as if he didn't exist anymore, really, that changes people completely. And, you know, people will, what well, people will and won't say normally in situations like this, you'll actually find out what to think. And, yeah. um, okay, it's decades later, but, I mean, you know, if you're there, I, I was at Monza about oh, uh, well, quite a while ago, Michael Schumacher's last European race um, for Ferrari um, when he was retiring. And, um, you know, I can still remember Fernando Alonso breaking down below me. Significant like that, you do remember. And, you know, it's decades later, but I, I think with the pomp and ceremony and adrenaline and excitement, you do tend to remember. Yeah. The one thing, the one thing came out of it. Ross Brown said it. Um, John Toth said it. Actually, even Damon Hill said it, which I was kind of surprised at. Um, he didn't realize he had done it. He he thought he was driving correctly, and you know you're trying to steer this car and control this car at exceptionally high feet. I mean, a G force of up to four on acceleration. You know, it's just it's worse than a fighter pilot and. You're trying to judge this car to within a few inches going around corners and it happened. You know, it, it's a racing incident as far as they were concerned. The team were convinced that it was too, that it was um, not Schumacher's fault. He, he really seemed, from what people were saying, to really um, be shocked and annoyed at himself, angry at himself by it, um, that he had done it. You know, it, it really, it really did, uh, did affect him badly. He retired immediately um, to his ski lodge. You will see it in the in the film Schumacher, where he basically immersed himself in family and, and uh, a few friends and had a good time and kind of chilled himself out. But were the FIA too severe? They were very severe. Uh, you know, such an amazing year for Schumacher. Second would have been, you know, f uh, fantastic for him. But the FIA seemed to just just go off the deep end with this. They really did for some reason. They were kind of severe on Villeneuve the race before. Um, he had a very harsh penalty in Suzuka for what they thought was ignoring yellow flags and, you know, was kicked out of the race, Shaq Villeneuve, which... No one could understand why that was. And then suddenly this 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 1.2 million fine, it was absolutely huge, you know. But it wasn't only that. The FIA actually took every single point off Michael Schumacher. So he wasn't even second. He didn't qualify in the race at all. So theoretically that year, he was last, which was 
I, I think people are still absolutely lost, you know, as to that. Now, did Jack Vield have deserved to win the World Championship? Yes, he did. He was doing yeah. a great job that year. Ferrari were miles behind. They were the underdogs. To get to second place in that car, you know, God, Michael Schumacher, must, he, he was almost psychically winning, willing the car forwards. It was just impossible. Nobody expected it at all. Um, and to get there, it was absolutely fantastic. But Jack Fielder was just on a run that year. He really was. And Williams were on a run that year. And, I mean, it's absolutely amazing to see it. It, it really is. Uh, I mean, Jack Villeneuve did something, you know, that nobody really did. He overtook Michael Schumacher. <laughs> yeah, said, and that's not Michael, easy done. Yeah, exactly. Michael Schumacher <laughs> may not win, but he did not lose positions uh, as, yeah. as a kind of a, a, as, as, as a rule of thumb, really, in, in, in most positions. But it was, a, it was impossible to get the Ferrari up there. And I think people have forgotten about that because of, you know, a tiny moment where somebody makes a mistake and gets absolutely pummeled for it. Actually, in um, the film Schumacher, I, 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 was, uh, I was really impressed with it because Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher don't really get on. Um, there's a few drivers. There's not that many. Most people he gets on with, but Damon Hill, for some reason, he didn't. Um, yeah. Probably because he took the championship away from him. But anyway, um, and, you know, Damon was just talking about it. And he says, you know, in that sort of situation, you know, if I was in that car, would I have done that? And yeah. he was just silent uh, with a wry smile on his face, which means, yeah, I probably would have. <laughs> you yeah. know, any of them did. But that's the way it was. It was a masterful year for Jack. It was a masterful year. Michael Schumacher was marking kind of his little line on the chalkboard saying, I'm back, you know. Yes, he had won with Benetton before, but it was like, I'm back and sore Ferrari. So it was great. But in his own right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We're going to do better. He did. But lastly, just that little thing I was talking to you about earlier um, with, um, you know, the FIA being quite heavy on Jack the race before. And I mean, the, the may as well have thrown Michael Schumacher out of a plane with no parachute. Um, the way it was but there was a secondary issue which was kind of shoved to one side and kept very quiet it did come out a little bit but it basically involved the manipulation of the race Jerez by two of sports Formula One's leading teams and it's it's complex and it's very intriguing as to what happened uh, Max Mosley of course is president of the FIA of the governing body of motorsport decided that Williams and McLaren had a case to answer for, that they were basically involved in this so-called manipulation of what was going on. Uh, and he had received a, a report from Charlie Whiting at the time. Um, really, it came from, how will I put it, secret tapes. Now, this could be why it went away, but it was secret tapes of transcripts and conversations between drivers and pit crew. Um, no one really, this has been pushed under a big time and, and the FIA were in possession of these. Uh, the teams basically deny any collusion whatsoever. And the case really centred on Villeneuve's actions, which allowed Mika Hakkinen through for his first to, to be fair, the, F, 
They yeah. FIA, the FIA are fairly handy at that too, well, uh, denying the things that never happened or this didn't happen or this did happen when it did or didn't happen, you know. So well, I mean, now you see, this, this is where it's coming from. And, you know, <laughs> did that information happen and where did it go and why did it go? I mean, mostly yeah. chaired a, a 24-man council, which also includes the infamous Bernie Eccleston um, and a race director, was there as well and they went through the transcripts the tapes the events everything that happened and it didn't warrant they reckoned further investment but what started coming out of the time and this is where things get really intriguing is there were linked slightly williams and mclaren were kind of giving out and were kind of leading dissidents in a in a, in a debate about the constitution of Formula One in the run-up to stock market flotation. And Williams and McLaren were quite critical about that. Now, you could be a cynic. You could be um, Mulder and Scully from the X-Files. You could be into sort of conspiracy theories and things. But there's a bit of smoke going on there, really, isn't there? There's something strange going on there with that one. You know, you and I, we, we wouldn't be like that. We, we wouldn't be cynical. No, we not at all. We deal with the facts and the evidence, like, you know. No, but I mean, I, I suppose, look, it's, it's like everything. This, this is yeah. out there for public record. It, it's not something I'm deducing myself, and it's not something yeah. I'm pointing and accusing anyone of. But the yeah. information is there. Make of it what you will. But it's very coincidental. Yeah, well, that that's it, and I think um, you know, you know, it's very interesting. But it's a, it's a very little track. It's a, as you said, it's a, a very interesting track. And I suppose we say really in relation to the modern day tracks nowadays, how would uh, Jerry's m- uh, measure up, or would it be kind of like the same if you were to compare that to, we say, the modern day tracks? What what are they like, or can you really compare them, or is there that much difference? There is a lot of difference between the uh, the fit and finish, shall we say, the the, the track itself, uh, Bar Monaco, which is, which is a disaster of a road surface to be racing on, really. Okay. <laughs> but um, it would be it would be a lot different for the drivers now, especially with the fact DRS DRS yeah. on Dapid on Jerez would be exceptionally difficult. It really would, and and of course we know we have DRS because. With modern day racing cars, they're so aerodynamic that if you're behind someone, it's next to impossible to get by them because the turbulent air coming off it slows you down. Ah, that does sound mad when you see things like NASCAR where kind of drafting occurs where the car in front of it is, is punching a big hole in the air and that's making your car go faster. Not the same in Formula One. The cars are just so efficient um, that they throw off all sorts of manner of, of, of mayhem out the back. So because of that, DRS came in to help faster cars get by. Um, of course, they have their own means of attacking and defending on that too with the, the hybrid battery power and things. But I think you'd be very pushed to get a section like that in Jerez. I think it would. the track itself would probably have to be extended slightly um, compared to what it used to be. It's still a fabulous track. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, if, if someone handed me a car, here's the keys, there's Jerez, go for a spin. You know, I'd be I I'd be happy as a pig in the proverbial, as they say. But uh, yeah. you know, it, it's fabulous, it's nostalgic, and it's still in such great condition. I I'd really like to see somebody 
trotting trotting down now and, and resurrecting everything and and putting it forwards and pushing it again you know and actually i suppose in some ways with covid we we even lost a couple of tracks um, yeah. as to whether they'll come back or not we got a couple of new a new circuits really and and ones that were modified um which made them new circuits really so uh, it would be nice to see it back again uh, I, I i liked jerez i like tracks like that and i like the old names a track I suppose I'd love to see back again um, um, would be in the UK, Brands Hatch. I, I'd love to see that one coming back again because uh, despite what people say, I have to admit I'm not the fondest of Silverstone. I would prefer Brands Hatch. Uh, yeah. But that's only that's only a personal preference. It's like everything. You know yourself, it's only it's only what you see yourself and what you like. <laughs> well, it's, it's horses for courses and all that. Or Formula One cares for tracks, I suppose, will be another Absolutely. one. <laughs> Another one that we're I was just thinking actually at the end of Jerez there with all that was going on between the FIA and Williams and McLaren and Ferrari and and you know very reminiscent of this year with exceptionally stern penalties that just seemed to be absolutely left people gobsmacked, gobsmacked not believing what happened. Uh, I suppose one day, one day we might find out if Max Mosley or, or Bernie Eccleston, I suppose, you know, decide to publish their memoirs in their later years. They'd be, they'd be, they'd be very interesting memoirs. Oh, but, yeah. um, <laughs> Maybe you know with your with, with your uh, former one know how and and your researchability, you might be able to come up with those memoirs. But uh, so next week we're going to be talking about um, we're going to be talking about the great uh, Ayrton Senna. We are uh, indeed. You know, and I thought it was very. I saw, as I said, I saw the the movie there the other day, and. Uh, it just goes to show you what, what happened. I mean, if this year, you know, you had Verstappen and, and Hamilton, yeah. well, then back then it was Ayrton Senna and Alan Prost. So, uh, you know, it was the same kind of a rivalry. And I suppose, you, you know, in a lot, we were talking off air. Um, it just goes to show you the amount of corruption and the amount of politics involved even back then and, and even more so now, I suppose. But I think the one good thing to come out of the whole uh, Ayrton Senna thing was, you know, since then there was new people appointed and this, that and the other. And um, I suppose it made uh, the, the things that were brought in has made the sa- the sport a lot safer. But that's something that we, we can talk about next week. But just sort of some points for people to, to kind of think about uh, ahead of, of next week's one. And uh, I'm sure like we'll have a lot, we'll have a lot we can chat about uh, throughout the podcast next week. No problems whatsoever, Aidan, and I'm looking forward to it. No problem. Thanks very much. And that was Michael, that was Michael O'Grady, our Formula One expert. <laughs>